On June 2nd, the world had its first death of a Rohingya refugee from coronavirus. The 71-year-old man died in Cox's Bazaar, a port city in Bangladesh, which is home to almost a million Rohingya refugees who have fled Myanmar due to persecution. The coronavirus has spread around the world, infecting millions of people in nearly every country. As doctors and scientists race to discover a vaccine, prevention measures are promoted. It's agreed that wearing face masks, social distancing, washing hands frequently, and good hygiene are the best defense against the virus. But in the world's refugee camps, these measures are nearly impossible to enforce. Aid workers are scrambling to protect the world's most vulnerable people, refugees, from the virus. You're listening to Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host, Willie Lowry, and this week we look at the threat of coronavirus in the world's refugee camps. The first case of COVID-19 in the vast Rohingya refugee camps in Cox's Bazaar was announced on May 14th. At least 29 people have tested positive since the first case. Aid workers at the camp have expressed concern as the number is expected to grow. With Relief International's Alejandro Agustin Cuellar calling the situation a ticking time bomb. We spoke to Athena Rayburn, Save the Children's Head of Advocacy, working on the Rohingya response. I think the Rohingya refugees in, in the camps are one of, if not the most sort of vulnerable population on earth to this because of this sort of perfect storm of conditions. There's sort of very limited options. If no options for social distancing, there's nowhere worse to be than a crowded indoor space. And very often we'll see people who are living in shelters with 10 plus members. In the UK, you can go to a supermarket. In other countries, you can go, you can stockpile, you can stay at home. You have washing and sanitation facilities in your house or apartment. There's no reason for you to need to leave. In the Rohingya camps, that's never going to be the case. People do not have access to running water or toilets or showers or food in their house. They don't won't have fridges. Um, so you know, we are really worried that we could be dealing with a worst case scenario where transmission is really high because it's just the, the best practice is just simply not feasible in, in not just the Rohingya refugee camps, but refugee camps across the world. Kutupalong in Cox's Bazaar, Bangladesh, is the largest refugee camp in the world. Nearly 700,000 people live in the camp, crammed into tents and makeshift living structures. The vast majority of people are Rohingya an ethnic and religious minority from Myanmar. They fled mass atrocities and violence because of their Muslim faith and now live in Bangladesh. Many of the refugees in the camp are already in poor health and the threat of COVID is particularly severe. We're afraid because nothing like this has happened before. We fear because we're living in a crowded place. If it happens to one, it will spread all over the place. Also, we don't have any money and don't have anyone to help us if the disease affects us. That's why we're very afraid. That was Najim Ula, a refugee from the camp. The fear of ill health and possibly death are very real in Cox's Bazaar. Athena tells us the attempts to prepare for COVID are hampered by more than poor facilities. Now we're in the monsoon, and the monsoon typically starts around the beginning beginning end of May and will last until pretty much the end of October. 
two issues we have with monsoon season is one, access to the camps for essential, the delivery of essential services. Um, the roads from Cox's Bazaar to the camps and, you know, it's at best a two hour drive frequently become flooded or sort of in, in like you're unable to drive on them when the monsoon is so strong that they completely flood. Um, and in addition to this, we do frequently see the destruction of facilities and shelters as a result of the monsoon rain. Um, in terms of COVID, you know, two big, really sort of big immediate concerns is one, if there is a need of medical evacuation, and that's not just for the Rohingya refugees in the area, but host community as well have to travel quite large distances to get to intensive care units if that's what they needed. That would be very difficult if the monsoon is compromising the roadways and transport and then, of course, we're already looking at um, overloaded uh, systems and healthcare facilities that were operating at capacity before COVID. Obviously, what we've seen globally is that health systems do become overwhelmed. Um, and it would be really devastating if the monsoon were to result in the sort of damage to healthcare facilities that could result in them needing to be shut or rebuilt, especially at the peak of an outbreak in the camps. There are clear hindrances to the most common ways to flatten the curve. And one of the sort of methods that we've seen globally is sort of the widespread use of social distancing and hand washing, but also, you know, this technique called shielding where you encourage those most at risk and vulnerable to stay inside and, and, and reduce their exposure and transmission. We estimate that there are about 32,000, just under 32,000 older people in the camp, so over the age of 60, um, across 30,000 households. It's very difficult to tell those people to stay at home when they don't have access to food. They don't have the ability, to, they don't have water running taps, they can't drink water. Um, and then relying on community structures and humanitarian agencies to make sure we're supporting those people. Um, because really we've got to make sure that we do everything so that those high risk vulnerable cases that do most often result in hospitalization. But the concept of isolating away from family for the Rohingya people also comes with a psychological burden. This is a population that has been through, you know, the most egregious human rights violations and violence. Um, you know, the UN has described what happened as, as having genocidal intent. Um, there's a huge trauma and scar of family separation in the Rohingya population. And of course, one of the hallmarks of COVID response is to isolate people that are, have symptoms or are confirmed positive. Um, and one of the the sort of the legacy of this the violence that Rohingya experience is that obviously that sounds incredibly worrying and terrifying especially when you're talking about the elderly people in your in your household or people who are sick or vulnerable that you won't be able to see them for weeks um so one of the the areas that I think we're seeing sort of COVID is really reigniting that trauma and, and fear of family separation there are nearly one million Rohingya refugees in Cox's Bazar. As many as 60,000 to 90,000 people are jammed into each square kilometer, with families of up to a dozen sharing small shelters as well as limited resources. Despite all these obstacles, the aid workers are trying to prepare as best they can. One of the things that we've been trying to do over the last few months 
has been to sort of repurpose facilities that are closed. So um, our temporary learning centres that usually do education have been closed since March. And a lot of agencies are now working to put isolation beds so they won't be um, specifically for critical or severe cases, but just spaces where people with mild cases of COVID can be isolated from their family to reduce transmission. Um, But when you're talking about a population of almost one million people, the work that we've done across the district and in the camps, I think at the moment we think that we should be able to have about 1,900 beds for isolation across the camps. Um, And again, emphasizing that's for just under one million Rohingya refugees. Um, So we're doing as much as we can, but the situation in the camps is sort of no matter what we do, it won't be enough. There are significant funding gaps between what is needed to maintain these camps and what has reached them so far. The decisions on what to prioritize means aid workers have to give up other crucial services. So a number of services, and you know, rightly so, needed to be suspended because initially the approach, obviously now COVID is, is in the camps, but our initial approach was to keep it out for as long as possible. So, so at the moment it's designated for critical services only, which is healthcare, anything to do with sanitation um, and hygiene messaging around COVID, and of course, food distribution. Um, There are some limited protection activities taking place globally, domestically, when there are sort of lockdowns and quarantine, there are instances of domestic violence increase. Um, One of our concerns from Save the Children specifically is, of course, the number of children that may now, uh, that don't have access to key services. So education services have been suspended, all of our child-friendly spaces and girl-friendly spaces, which for Rohingya children living in a camp provide a much needed source of stability, normalcy and, and just mental and psychosocial support have all been closed. Um, there's a population that's sort of on the brink of COVID and, you know, there's a huge amount of fear about COVID and especially vulnerable populations like children don't have access to their usual coping mechanisms. Another of the big challenges for the camp is the telecommunications ban. On September 9th, 2019, the Bangladeshi authorities shut down all 3G and 4G services in the camps. Athena says this hampers the ability of aid workers and medical personnel in their fight against COVID-19. The need to communicate and spread factual, verifiable information during a time like this is absolutely essential. So the sort of prolonged ban on internet has made communicating with one million people incredibly difficult um, and also has contributed to sort of rumours and and misinformation flying around the camps. The ban came into place in September 2019 um, and the government cited the need to control criminal activity um, and for security reasons in the camps. Um, So there are sort of anecdotal evidence of trafficking networks or or drug, Yabba is a drug that sort of comes through Myanmar. Um, So that has been the reason. And when we have been advocating pretty consistently, you know, because of the need to access information for that to be restored. And then when we started, you know, turning towards responding to COVID, the need to have mobile communication. So just even for coordinating, you know, swift medical evacuations, disseminating information when you can't physically go and tell people because you're not allowed to physically be in the presence of people. How do you communicate with one million people without the internet? The situation in Bangladesh is certainly pressing, but it's not unique. There are over 70 million displaced people around the world, many of them having traveled hundreds of miles to escape war 
or persecution. Most camps are crowded at best, overflowing to smaller makeshift camps in the surrounding areas. Sally Thomas is deputy head of Médecins Sans Frontières, Syria. There was approximately one million people that were moving. Um, they are a population of mainly women and children. So we spend our time then trying to follow this population, see where they're going, where are they staying, and what are their immediate and emergency needs. And, of course, we're seeing then they just set themselves up wherever they can. We call them unofficial camps in the area. And they're unofficial because they'll usually just find any little bit of land, maybe on the side of the road or squat under olive trees is um, a very common um, thing to do. And, you know, maybe sort of looking and waiting until they can go home. So what, what we then see is that it, it's always such a very, very temporary situation that these people are living in. And so this just, of course, creates so many problems with the hygiene, the sanitation and people's access to healthcare. The challenges in preventing the spread of COVID are vast, but for people fleeing war, Sally has found other difficulties. They've been chasing, um, running away from airstrikes and the threat of um, rebel armies or um, different front lines moving. And now when we talk to people, because they haven't seen COVID yet or when we're not, we haven't had confirmed cases yet, they say that it's a an invisible threat, so it's not a problem. So now what we're starting to see is this challenge of how do we try to help to convince the people that it is still a very, very serious threat. Um, so it's very difficult for them because they can't see it, it's hard to understand the severity of it. Sally feels a large part of her work is educating people on the reality of the coronavirus threat. Refugees have fled in situations of desperation, but Sally says some of them don't understand that this is not something they can flee. I think it's more the fear. They have a lot of fear around it, and especially in um, northwest Syria where um, after years of war, you get a population that is, is then has been um, education is very limited, the healthcare system is broken, and then trying to help them to understand as to exactly what to do when we receive the first positive case, because we receive a lot of suspected cases. And their response was, well, when we get the first confirmed case, we're going to run away. And you're like, no, no, you can't do that. This is what we're training you for. But they're like, well, we are too scared. We will just run away. Um, and I almost feel that, you know, in a place, especially like Northwest Syria, and they've spent their lives, they, when they fear something and their natural instinct is to run away from it. Um, and it, it's almost like, you know, not having a complete understanding of everything to do with it. It's like you can't run away from this. As much of the world looks to reopen on the other side of the first wave of the coronavirus, it appears the world's refugee camps are only just now being hit. With isolation near impossible, poor hygiene facilities, and the inability to buy food and medicine in bulk, the refugees are uniquely vulnerable to the virus. You've been listening to Beyond the Headlines. I've been your host, Willie Lowry. Thanks this week to Sally Thomas and Athena Rayburn. 
We were produced by Taylor Heyman, Liz Cookman, Aisha Khan, and Arthur Edison. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting app.